0: This is Christina Inge, author of Marketing Metrics, Leverage Analytics and Data to Optimize Marketing Strategies, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett.
1: Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Christina Inge to talk about her book, Marketing Metrics, Leverage Analytics and Data to Optimize Marketing Strategies, published by Kogan Page. Christina Inge is the founder and CEO of ThoughtLight, a tech consulting company which specializes in digital marketing and analytics strategies. She has worked with well-established brands such as Nissan, the Smithsonian, and Pegasystems, as well as a range of startups and nonprofits. Based in Boston, Massachusetts, she is a member of the Massachusetts Technology Leadership Council and has served on the board of the American Marketing Association, Boston, an instructor. At Harvard University Extension School.
0: Hello, Harvard, yo.
1: And Northeastern University College of Professional Studies. She is a frequent and sought after speaker and has been published in numerous industry publications. And, interesting fact, she is a quilt maker. Christina, congratulations on marketing metrics and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hi, Douglas. I am very excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and now we got to get something out of the way. You, you live in the Boston area. You live in Boston, right?
0: I live just outside Boston in a small town, yep,
1: and um, born and raised here. Okay, great. Well, Christina, do you need any appliances for your home by any chance? Uh, my fridge
0: is kind of on its last legs, yes.
1: Excellent. Well, if you do, you need to go to Yale Appliance in the Boston area. <gasps>
0: Oh, stop! But yes, actually, they are wonderful. And all kidding aside, I actually got my stove from them. Excellent. It conked out. I called them asking how much it would be to repair. They came to my house with a new stove and let, and and replaced it for free. So So I don't know if they're the sponsor of this podcast. No, they're not.
1: They're not at all. They're not a paid sponsor. Marketing Architects is. We'll talk about them. But the reason I ask is because the CEO of Yale Appliance, Steve Scheinkoff, he listens to every episode of the Marketing Book podcast. I've become friends with him. We've we've broken bread together. He likes the podcast so much he actually sent me several bottles of wine which you're mm. all free to do if you want. But he is also featured in Chapter 22 of the second edition of They Ask, You Answer, the book by Marcus Sheridan, which is one of my favorite books. So if there's any listeners in the Boston area, like Christina, shopping for appliances, I want you to go to one of the Yale appliance stores and ask for the Marketing Book Podcast special. And I don't know what that is, but I, I just want you to go and give Steve a hard time and tell him uh, you know, that you're you're a fellow Marketing Book Podcast listener and, obviously you know Steve listens to the show he's a very attractive guy and the listeners are as well so you'll you'll be in very good uh very good company so i just wanted to mention that so this book is about 300 pages 14 chapters and includes uh, an eight page dictionary of marketing metrics and related terms mm-hmm. and the 14th chapter is loaded with all kinds of marketing metrics resources for Further explanation like uh, like books and blogs and conferences and all kinds of things, really very, very helpful. So if there is a marketing metric that is not covered in this book, folks, I will eat my hat. <laughs> it, it really covers the waterfront. I am so impressed by this book. It's going to be so helpful for people. And uh, I don't mean to bring up my anger management issues, but <laughs> the next time I hear a marketer complaining about, not being able to measure their marketing, which I hear all the time, or I'll hear a business, and oftentimes I'll say, "Okay, well, how are you? Um, how are you currently measuring it? What, what What are you measuring now?" They hem and they haw; they're not measuring it. I mean, it's, it's it's very meek. I'm going to ask them if they've read Marketing Metrics. So <laughs> there's a number of reasons why it was so important to be able to read your book. I'm going to ask, have you read Marketing Metrics by Christina Inge? And if they haven't, and come on, I know they will not have read it. I'm then going to fantasize about throwing this book at them. And it's a big book. It, it weighs uh, one and a half pounds. I don't know if you knew that, Christina, but when you're the host <laughs> of the Marketing Book Podcast, you do your homework. You You weigh the book. <laughs> But I think it might hurt if I actually did throw it accurately. And I once played baseball, so anyway, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to do any of that. So, I just wanted you to know that the book got me, uh, you know, very much emotionally involved, and um, it's going to serve a great purpose for a lot of people. Very kind. Yeah. Well, and I and I read a lot of these books. I, well, I read all the books on the show, but this is one that really belongs on a marketer's desk. So, I want to read from a couple sections at the beginning to give folks a little flavor of what's in the book. And then as I mentioned to you before we started recording, Christina, I said this will be a very frustrating interview for you, and not just because <laughs> of the annoying personality the host has, but because there's so much in this book. And I, I, I'm just gonna be able to pull out a few ideas that I think will be helpful for folks to 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 get reacquainted with or to, to think about. So I'm going to quote from the preface. In this book, I'll show you how to use marketing metrics to create more strategic marketing across a range of programs and channels. Marketing long struggled with being seen as essential to a business. Challenging to measure for decades, it was seen as a cost center. No matter how many leads you generated, how much traffic and conversions you drove, you could never prove that sales growth was due to marketing efforts and not random chance, or the product's attractiveness alone. Marketing was often not part of the C-suite, and it was often the first to be cut in a downturn. Metrics offered the promise of a better way of understanding and structuring marketing. Marketing measurement grew from a few simple tools to the robust ecosystem we have today. And with it, a new awareness of marketing centrality to business was born. And then I want to jump over to page 12. This book is about how to lead digital transformation with metrics. Think of it as your guide to managing with metrics. How to understand your customers, how to build more robust product pipeline, how to develop data-driven culture, how to use metrics to manage your team, what are the essential KPIs you need to track, how to use data to drive marketing decisions. And then continuing on that page, if you are looking for a book that will help you understand how to make your business more data-driven, this is the one for you. This book shows you how to apply the latest analytics to all aspects of marketing management. It is filled with real-world examples and case studies and provides step-by-step instructions on how to create a data-driven marketing strategy. Throughout the book, real marketers like you share their triumphs with marketing metrics, how they use them, and what they want other marketers to know about leading with data. Marketing metrics are an adventure. They are not just about understanding what happened in the past, but also about using that information to shape what will happen in the future. That's why it is so important to have a data-driven marketing strategy. Whether you are a veteran with metrics or just coming to the discipline, welcome to the journey. Welcome to the party, pal! (laughs) So, Christina, I want to ask you a few questions from Chapter 1, which beautifully Sets the tone for the entire book, and I saw in the book earlier you said you had been a copywriter when you were earlier in your career. Yep, that really comes through. It was an enjoyable read, and also I want listeners to know, and I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but listeners can actually read this first chapter on Amazon preview <laughs> so and I bet I have more questions from chapter one than than the other part, but I just want folks to at least read that and, and you know and then order her book and and get it. But I want to read let's see what page was it? Page one. Um, you write, many brands talk about creating a data-driven strategy, yet for most companies, the use of data is still focused more on validating whether that has happened in the past or what's happening now is working. Few companies take the time to ask what they should do differently or better in the future. In your experience, why why is that still so? I think it's just because it's what people
0: think is possible. Um, I think that people, generally speaking, want to feel good about themselves. And what makes you feel good about yourself is saying, hey, I did a good job. This, this marketing campaign was highly successful. And so our bias as human beings governs a lot of how we look at data. And nowhere is that more... The case as that constant human impulse to ask, "How did I do? I know, as a chronic overthinker, the minute we get off this podcast, i'm going to spend the rest of today beating myself up over my performance on this podcast
1: oh, Christina, your performance is already better than mine, so right off the bat
0: <laughs> oh well,
1: <thank laughs> you're doing you. great,
0: <laughs> thank, thank you, but it, you know, we all love to. Look at how well we did. And as, as an athlete, you know that there's a lot of value in looking at past games that you've played, looking at the video from them, and learning from that. The challenge, however, is that marketing, the business world, it's it's never static. You can learn from what you have done in the past, And say, hey, we did a good job last quarter with, let's say, our Instagram campaigns. And that's important. But I think a lot of organizations stop there because they don't take into account that what worked last quarter or even last week is not necessarily what's going to work this week. It feels very exhausting to keep on top of all the latest trends. And I've especially encountered a fair number of folks in the C-suite saying, oh, I don't want to chase trends. Um. I don't have time for any of that that foolishness. And absolutely, you don't want to run after every trend that is not aligned with your brand. But at the same time, I think that we're not putting enough emphasis on the fact that you need two streams of data. You need to look at what has worked in the past, and you need to report on that. But you also need to start thinking, well, how do we adapt for the future? What are the data points telling us how consumer tastes are changing, for instance? You can get a lot of that data from your own analytics, but we just don't look there. And so... I think that's kind of the main reason why it's the way it is. The other is that we're all human, right? We all want to make a living and we all want to be appreciated in our work, or or at least most of us do. And it's that past performance that gets us the raises and the bonuses and the credibility within our organization. And so of course we're going to be biased towards those those data points that that we can run to with our boss and say, hey, I deserve a raise, or I deserve, you know, a praise or whatever it is. So, I think a lot of it's human nature. It's discomfort with the constantly changing nature of today's society and not wanting to have to constantly adapt, but you do to some extent while staying true to who you are. And um, at the same time, I think it's just self-interest.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, your book has, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but at the very, I think it was the 13th chapter, or the, towards the very end, there's like one that one chapter that every marketer should read. It has to do with the skills and uh, what you, what and it includes reference where you can go learn about all these things. And I guarantee that if people take that to heart, marketers specifically, they will be the marketer that every CEO wants to hire and can't afford to lose. Guarantee it, and you'll have a very successful marketing career. But you gotta, you know, you gotta read this and you gotta do it. There's probably a lot of listeners who are, are already very much in line here, so a lot of that might be a bit of an affirmation. And I should also add that your book talks about humans a lot. <laughs> this ain't no math book. I mean, you know, you explain a lot of that and you talk about the metrics, but it's really, it, you'll be more successful if you <laughs> understand humans better. Let me ask you just a couple things. Other things from chapter one that just really caught my eye. Oh, and I should also add, in that I think in that chapter you talk about because I'm thinking about that CEO you mentioned. This uh, these metrics can become such an enormous competitive advantage if you just look at them. You don't have to do it perfectly. You just have to do it a little bit better than your competition. You'll start. You'll start to see. But hey, you know what do I know? But let me ask you. Explain what you mean when you write that numbers are supposed to be cold hard facts. They are not supposed to be ambiguous, but they are.
0: Oh, this is one of my favorite things. In my class, I show people a website called Spurious Correlations. This is a hilarious website where um, I believe a math professor or, or an engineering professor pull together data from the most credible of sources that are utter, utter nonsense when presented the wrong way. So he'll pull together data from the Centers for Disease Control on causes of death. Um, he'll pull together data from the Department of Agriculture, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, on foods that we're buying. And he'll find utterly nonsensical correlations between ridiculous things. But they're almost perfect correlations. For instance, did you know, Douglas, that the more margarine Americans eat, the higher the divorce rate in Maine? <laughs>
1: Now I do, and for that I thank you.
0: I, you know, and you know what? It's completely useless information. It, the two things correlate with each other. Well, that's my but specialty, that but go ahead. They're, they're, co- they're causative. Maybe they are. Maybe maybe margarine causes so much human misery that it's it's breaking people's lives apart.
1: Yeah, and because- I've heard another one about how um, shark attacks uh, occur when ice cream sales are high. Mm-hmm. They have no, – that's a good other Nothing example. Nothing to do with each other. Nothing to do with each other, but people can connect those two. I see it. Is it tylerviggin.com? Yes. Yes, I'll yeah, include a link of, to it on this episode's website page. I love it.
0: He's a genius um, because he talks about things like the older Miss America is, the more people are killed with hot objects, and I don't think Miss America, the older she gets, is out there causing these kinds of homicides. <laughs> I think that the the end at the end of the day – Numbers, an individual number is a cold hard fact, right? Uh, The shark attacks are are X number of attacks and ice cream sales are X number of dollars. Where we, where the ambiguity comes in is the interpretation. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we do is we will willy nilly interpret data. In ways that, again, going back to this is our human bias. This is how our <laughs> brains work. We see one thing, we associate it with another, and then we're off to the races.
1: Yeah. Well, I, the only science I can tell you that is correct is that marketing book podcasts listeners are ridiculously good looking. And I've done all the, you know, Multivariate A/B testing that you talk about, conjoint analysis. I'm just showing off with these big words, but it's it's proven. You know, don't it don't the science is settled on that one. Let me ask you just another things, a couple things from that first chapter that just really got me. Explain what you mean when you write that metrics are your compass, not the GPS telling you exactly where to turn left and how many feet to the next corner.
0: Yeah, that's that is very. Very comforting, I think, for today's marketers. You hear, oh, we're all going to be replaced by robots. And I'm going to tell (laughs) you that that's not the case because metrics will only tell you that sales of blue socks are trending up for instance and sales of green socks are trending down but what you do with that information the gps part how do i interpret that do i make more blue socks or do i figure out why green socks aren't selling oh it's because (laughs) this influencer went on youtube and wildly condemned green sock wearers yeah and so what i need to do is get this influencer to talk about how my green socks are an exception or whatever ridiculous thing is, is the directional information that you need to be paying attention to. I think that's where we fall down as marketers is
1: hoping that it's a GPS telling us exactly what to do.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Thinking that, oh, this is the answer. Oh, this is what I need to do. No, 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 no. It's just information. What you're going to do with that information, that is up to you. And I'll I'll give you one of my favorite examples. And my students, it's gotten to be at this point, they cheer when I mention it because it's my <laughs> signature analogy and I shoehorn it onto everything. Um, have you seen the true camp classic, the three hundred?
1: Oh, yeah, I think I saw yeah, about um the, the Spartans was it the, the Athenians, yeah.
0: Yeah, the, the Spartans and mm-hmm. how, you know, they, they bravely stood up to, um, it's, it's a horrible movie in so many ways. And I think I
1: saw it, but I'm very familiar with it, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, what would I tell you if I told you that the Spartans were, A, a, a bunch of big bullies who who you know we know ancient greece they invented democracy the spartans actually hated democracy and would invade all the other city states of ancient greece set up puppet governments and and destroy their democratic government and b it's actually sparta ultimately got defeated and they were defeated by another group of ancient greeks who were like give us our democracy back um and called Thebes, and Thebes is the head, the head city of a region called Boeotia, which translates to cow land. And these were folks who were very much looked down upon by the rest of ancient Greece for being, I, I guess, the the ancient equivalent of, of rednecks. <laughs> um, and they stood up to Sparta. And defeated them, and the way they did it was with data. Uh, their general, who was the second greatest ancient Greek general after Alexander the Great, Epaminondas, a guy who's now completely forgotten because us math nerds, history wants to forget us, but we—he <laughs> um, looked at the same data everybody else had. Is like the Spartan army is completely undefeatable if you take them head on, because they'll line up shield to shield. Um, and you can't break through that line of shields. And so that data was in front of everybody. You could see that there were 12,000 of them and only, I think, 8,000 of the Thebans. The, num- the arithmetic was not adding up. So he had the same data but he chose to do something different with it he was like okay well if we can't take them head on cuz there's more of them and they're better trained we on the other hand are quicker and smarter because we are cowland we're cattle ranchers and there's one thing that being on growing up on a cattle ranch teaches you it's how to get out of very large objects way really fast <laughs> um and surround them and rope them And so he said, okay, you know what? Why don't we take the skills that we have with the same exact numbers that everybody else is looking at and figure out a way to get around the Spartans, surround them, break through their line through concentrating what force we do have, because we know that, you know, being history's big bullies, once we have them at a disadvantage, they won't know what to do. And so within less than 60 minutes... This middle aged math professor and his ragtag army of cowland people were able to do exactly that. He did not have a better army. He did not have more weapons. He did not have more resources. If anything, this was literally the backwoods backwater of ancient Greece, and they made the world safe for democracy by looking at the data but seeing different patterns in it than anybody else had ever seen. Mm. So that's what I mean about the difference between the compass and the GPS. You look at your compass, everybody, including the Athenians, who were the wealthiest, most powerful city-state in all of ancient Greece, said, okay, these guys have us outnumbered, and they're terrifying. We are not going to take them on. We're just going to cower and hope they don't beat us up. And uh, Epaminondas, or your friendly neighborhood middle-aged math professor, said, okay, yeah, yeah, they have us outnumbered. Sure.
1: Let's look at the data.
0: <laughs> but let's look at the data. What can we <laughs>
1: Yes. Oh, that's great. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, Time-consuming and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary... They wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast you're in Boston. It reminds me that uh, I remember hearing from some HubSpot employees that they said that when they would start meetings there, they would always say, let's start with the numbers because <laughs> it's easy to get uh, you know, distracted. Oh, that's a great story. And I don't recall that being in the book.
0: It's not in the book, but it is in the going. My students beg me to actually I have a whole I have a whole analogy because I've got seven management lessons you can learn from from the the defeat of Sparta by Cowland. They're asking me to turn that into another book, but oh, it's more wow. about management. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, I had not. Um, I had not become quite as much of an ancient history geek when I was writing this book. It is a. It is a subsequent descent into madness. Ah,
1: one of your many interests. Well, so what I'm saying to the listener is, what you just heard—that's a marketing book podcast extra. You're not going to get that in the book. You're going to get that only by listening to this. Uh, this interview. You're welcome and thank you, Christina. So I wanted to um, mention page nine had two quotes that I just. i I just thought were great and again it got me fired up one of them is marketing metrics are not about tools they are about understanding your customers and prospects so you can develop the right marketing strategy and tactics can you dig it
0: can you dig it can you
1: And then below that, it says, to get started with data-driven marketing, you need to understand your customer, their buying process, and how they interact with you. At the heart of all marketing metrics are customers, their needs, their actions, their attitudes, and their whims. This understanding depends on something that no AI-based metrics platform has, empathy. We need to remember that all this data is meaningless without a human connection, Machines can give us data and insights, but it is up to us to use that data to create a connection with our customers. In order to use data effectively, we need to have empathy for our customers.
0: Can you dig it?
1: My goodness. And then just one other thing I want to mention is on uh, page 11, where you write, Gathering data means nothing unless it is applied to knowing what real customers want. And the numbers may seem cold. Metrics are at heart about creating greater empathy from brands towards their customers. Empathy is the secret sauce that makes data useful. So let me just jump to a couple of the things in some of the subsequent chapters. Chapter two, uh, let's see, page 16, you write, just as customers are the heart of a business, customer data is the heart of marketing metrics. But... Before we dive into just a couple of the the data points, what should be a company's core data source?
0: It should be the CRM. It really should because that's where you should ideally Mm -hmm. be looking at where your customers are coming from and then what are they doing once they're engaging with your brand. And I know that that sounds obvious and simple, but people tend to go off on all kinds of oh. little bitty tangents. It's like, <laughs> I want to look at what what color people are clicking on the most <laughs> on Instagram. And that's great. Um, and And, you know, you can obviously be looking at micro pieces of data for the purposes of campaign optimization design optimization i'm a huge fan of a b testing i'm not saying those small pieces of data are not really really important for the purposes of optimization but at the end of the day what you really are in the business of doing is getting customers and keeping customers that's it. That's that's what you're doing, and and so you can look at all of the little details. But I'm going to just again keep with that one analogy. Did Epaminondas think, hey, 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 that Spartan general, his he's got he's got a little rust on his his armor? Right. Oh, no, no, they were in the business of making Sparta go the heck away <laughs> right. and saving democracy, and these little micro details. They only matter in, in like the immediate moment. I mean, if you are, or if you are fighting that Spartan general hand to hand, you are going to aim for the part of his armor that's rusty, which I doubt that the Spartans had rusty armor. But just to give you an example, like in that moment, sure, you got to pay attention to the details. But if you're the CMO or you are the creative director at an agency, You are the general of your marketing campaigns. The more you get bogged down in those itty bitty details, those are beside the point for you. Those are not your job. You have to trust your individual people to do their jobs with that microdata and what you need to be looking at is the big picture is how are we getting customers what channels what messaging what targeting is bringing the customers in the door and then how are we retaining them but i would also argue that even if you are at this point an individual contributor if you're happy doing that which again that's that That is awesome. But even if you do not want to go to another role, you need to understand how what you're doing fits into the big picture because that's how you get recognition. That's how you make yourself indispensable. So even if your day-to-day is I need to figure out what exact shade of gray gets clicked on the most. You still need to be looking to your CRM data to understand the whole customer journey, get a holistic picture of the customer so you understand the context in which that shade of gray is getting the most clicks. Because that's what's going to make you invaluable to your organization.
1: Here, here. The most successful marketers have a company-first mindset and they understand what the company's trying to accomplish. Remind folks of... The core customer metrics, because again, it's so easy to get distracted by all the minutia of like how sharp their spears were (laughs) in that battle. But you talk about these four core customer metrics, and it sounds, I think it would be a great reminder for folks of what's most important.
0: Absolutely. So in my book, I talk about what I call the core four. Mm -hmm. And these are the four most important types of customer customer metrics that you need to look at. And you look at them to understand how you're interfacing with your customers and how you can best serve them, how you can convert more customers and how you can retain more customers which is what business is all about. Um, and I, they are your revenue-based metrics, conversion metrics, communications data, and your customer loyalty value and retention data. Data. Your revenue-based customer metrics are literally what is the lifetime customer value of one customer segment versus another or of one particular type of customer versus another. And, and segment and type might be a little bit different. And looks at also what's driving the higher revenue, the higher lifetime customer value customers to come to you, what channel are they coming through on, for instance. And that can tell you basically how to stay in business, right? How to make money, um, which at the end of the day, you know, it's unfortunately we live in a world where, where money is what, what call is is our currency, but you know, at the you're creating jobs. If you're not making money, you're not creating jobs. So don't revenue is not a dirty word.
1: No, you can do good things with money,
0: you, much more so than you can without any.
1: <laughs> there you go, yeah. And then, and, uh, so you talk about revenue, and you know, there were there been books on the. There was a book on the show a while back. It's one of my favorites, specifically for marketers, called Twelve Powers of a Marketing Leader, and they. One of them was a former McKinsey partner, and they analyzed unbelievable amounts of information about marketers and perceptions of marketers. And they, uh, the recommendation they had for all marketers going forward is to get in the revenue camp. And yeah. uh, too many are not there. They're not even asking questions about that. They don't understand that. So what would be an example of uh, some conversion-type things?
0: yeah because that's the next one conversion metrics and that's simply going um, further up the funnel before you actually have revenue from a particular customer and instead you're looking at well what's bringing the customers to the door so you're you're often looking at the same data point when you're looking at your revenue based customer metrics and your conversion metrics but you're looking at them from a different perspective so if you're looking at a channel from a revenue standpoint you're saying okay of all of the customers it brought to our door how do they contribute to the overall revenue of the company like is social media driving high lifetime customer value customers or or lots of low LTV but still profitable ones or is it not or Mm -hmm. is it email that's more doing it now conversion metrics are simply looking at going higher in the funnel how are people converting to begin with? What channels are driving lots of conversions versus which channels are barely getting anyone to convert? And I do encourage people to use multi-touch attribution. Google Analytics has some wonderful tools for using data-driven attribution to really look at how... Um, a channel is contributing to conversions, even if it's not that last touch point. So that really looks at just how am I getting people in the door? How are they getting to conversion at all? What Mm -hmm. channel, what messaging, what, call to action, what offers. You can get very granular with that, but you still want to look at, okay, what in aggregate seems to be driving conversions more than others. Mm-hmm. Then there's communications data. And that's essentially of the messages that I'm putting out there, whether it's blogging, you know, I'm a huge HubSpot fan. I'm a huge fan of um, inbound marketing. What content is really resonating with my customers right now on the, the segment level? Like, uh, you know, are my 18 to 24 year olds reading different content than my 50 to 60 year olds? Or is it, um, high lifetime customer values are re, are, uh, High lifetime customer value customers are reading um, different content versus those who are lower lifetime customer value. You can slice and dice that data in any way, shape, or form you want. But the key there is I need to understand what it is exactly that is resonating with my customers, what do they like to hear, what do they like to read about, what do they like to watch, because that's going to help me understand their psychology.
1: Yeah, and, and I would add that it, yeah. what communications is it that the that is bringing in the right customers? <laughs> because you talk in the book about how mm-hmm. you could be having some content that's bringing in a lot of people, but they might not be really your ideal customers, and this is how you can find out.
0: Exactly. They they could be completely the wrong customers. They could be people who cost you money. Yes. I mean I've seen it. I, I've seen people get all excited. Oh wow, we got all these customers. Yeah, yeah, they're bleeding you dry. though. <laughs>
1: right. I'm sorry, I'm laughing to keep from crying.
0: It, it's um, true though. It's it's Raw number of customers is not a win.
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And then then the last one was customer loyalty value and retention metrics. Again, these are the really, really important ones. These are like the, the Mount Rushmores uh, of marketing metrics.
0: They really are. What's causing my customers to stay? What's causing them to bounce? I, and I don't mean as in bounce rate. As in, I mean as in leave. Go away. Yes. Um, that will tell you everything about... Okay, I am, for instance, getting customers in the door using social media, but those social media customers are the most fickle. They are the ones who tend to, to go the fastest. Oh, and you know why? It's because we're so discount-driven on social media that we are, oh, sure, we're getting a lot of people in the door, but you know what? Everybody we get in the door Came in via promotion. And then this quarter, it looks like, wow, we're really winning. Look at all these customers we've acquired. Well, we've acquired them by deeply discounting to them, though. And then ultimately, off they go in pursuit of other discounts. Mm -hmm. And so... You have to look at these data points because at the end of the day, it costs a lot less to retain a customer than it does to keep acquiring new ones. So you want to make sure that your retention is on point. And so look at the data about where are you getting the customers that you successfully retain because it could be something about the customers and or what are the interactions you are having with customers that's causing them to stay? or to a, to um you know a, a trite attrition
1: mm-hmm. yeah you know that that popped into my head is uh, the the Groupon i don't even know if they're still around but Groupon had all these uh, offers and a whole bunch of people would take the, take the offer and they'd go to a, a whatever a gym a donut store or whatever and Groupon ended up ruining some companies because they they had such mm-hmm. demand and they lost all the, they were all deal seekers They there was uh, zero loyalty, and it was uh, kind of a uh, a great study in in you know attracting the wrong uh, kind of people. Yep. Let's uh, let's jump all the way to channel channel chapter four on channel metrics. So just in case people don't know, explain what you mean by a channel, because I want to ask you a a couple questions.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So a channel is essentially any um, any. Marketing channel, really. A marketing channel would be, for instance, social media is a marketing channel if you want to get more granular. Um, Instagram is a marketing channel. TikTok is a marketing channel. Email, marketing channel. So it's basically Mm -hmm. a whatever platform or venue, if you want to call it, through which you're getting your message out and reaching your customers.
1: Right. So you write that if you manage a lot of channels, and who doesn't, (laughs) using the PESO model can help you organize them better. Can you explain what the PESO model is?
0: Oh, yeah. The PESO model is something that I originally learned about from my dear mentor, um, Ed Powers at Northeastern, who um, is currently my department chair, was kind of um, the person who taught me a lot about how to be a, a thoughtful and open teacher. Um, but he did not originate the idea. I am completely blanking on the name of the lady who invented this model, but I'm going to try to make sure that I put it into um, any resources we send out.
1: Would it have been Ginny Dietrich? It would be Ginny Dietrich. Because that's, that's where I first learned about it. She was on the show a number of years ago, and I think they're now, I think she mentioned to me not too long ago, they're, they're, they've incorporated this into a lot of uh, college curriculums. It yeah.
0: is very true. Mm-hmm. And I love the peso model. Peso stands for paid, earned, shared, and owned. Paid is your advertising or any media you literally pay to to have a presence on. So it isn't just advertising. It could be a paid collab with an influencer. It's basically you pay the money um, and you get the placement, provided your materials are, you know, acceptable. Next is earned. Earned is basically what we think of as PR. Mm-hmm. That's when somebody writes about you, whether they're a, a new media like a blogger or whether they are the traditional media like the New York Times and you did not have to pay. For it, it's because they saw something of merit or newsworthy in you.
1: So it's not a paid ad, right?
0: It's not a paid ad. It's when you get coverage. Mm -hmm. Then there is shared media. Shared media is a fancy word for any media where you get a certain amount of control, but at the end of the day, you do not own that platform. Social media is shared media. You may feel like you're in control of or you own your Instagram page, but at the end of the day, Instagram owns. So they can make you disappear tomorrow by changing their algorithm. Uh so it's happened to lots of people. Yes, so think Google Plus. Google Plus <laughs> it could just disappear period. Yeah. And so um Shared media is important because it's going to give you a lot of visibility, but never forget that it is shared. And this is something Ginny talks about a lot in her um, writings. And then finally, there's the gold standard, your owned media. That's your own website. That's your email newsletter. That is what you completely control. And as a result, you can put whatever messaging you want out there. You can connect directly with your consumers there. And most importantly, you get that data on how your consumers are interacting with your message because you get to see what they click on. You get to see what they open. You get to see what they're interacting with. And that is absolutely vital in today's environment where third-party data is increasingly going away, right? Thanks to very laudable regulations that are coming in place because people want their privacy protected. Right. And I should
1: add for the listeners, uh, you have an entire chapter out of the 14 about data privacy. Absolutely. You really need to know about that. Yeah. Or or it's going to become a a million-dollar problem for you. If well, it
0: does if in fact, so yeah, yeah. absolutely, so, yeah, you gotta go with the data that you own and that you control because a, people have opted into that. It's it's more ethical. You own that data, but, but b also, um, you have the control over it so that you can utilize
1: it and it can't be taken away from you. Yeah, and in the book, you talk about how companies actually have more data than a lot of them realize. you've you've got a lot of information there.
0: You absolutely do. Um, My research assistant, Sarah Salmon, and I recently conducted a study um, funded in part, well, Sarah, being able to hire, Sarah was funded in part by Harvard University, have to, you know, declare I I got the money for... Hello, Harvard, yo. (laughs) Got the money for hiring the amazing Sarah. Um, And that study, we talked to 20 C-suite executives and what was absolutely surprising. We talked to them about how are you using your marketing data? And a lot of them are not making full use of it. And I was surprised that especially in the nonprofit sector, it's because they don't even know the data that's being collected. There's not enough people. There's not enough resources out there. There's no time to sit down and look at the data. So it just, someone's collecting it somewhere. No one has had a chance to sit down and look at it. And granted, it's a really, really small study. I need more money to hire Sarah again. Um <laughs> But what we found, honestly, was that that people are pretty upfront about the fact of, yeah, I don't even know what all data my marketers <laughs> right. are collecting. Or if you are a marketer, you don't know what all data the person in the cubicle next to you is collecting.
1: Yeah, a lot of companies are sitting on a, a, a lot of very uh, valuable information. And this, they just got to go. Go find it. So, th- this chapter, though, has quite a bit on how to, uh, you know, what specific metrics to look at for all your channel metrics. And I should add that this chapter has a great section on how to measure television advertising effectiveness. And I'd like to give a shout out to the sponsor, Marketing Architects. Yay! You have a chapter on branding. Again, you're you're very brave. Data driven branding, and you doubters out there, you thought you couldn't measure branding. Ha! I'm just going to ask one question about this chapter. But you write on page uh, 82 that part of the complexity of measuring branding is that all aspects of branding are complex, which brought to mind this quote from uh, "Myths of Branding" by Andy Milligan and Simon Bailey, which was on the show very recently. And they wrote that branding is not rocket science. It's way more complicated than that. (laughs) But just to pull out one question, um, I think it was from page 90. You say, the biggest mistakes brands make when measuring brand identity is that they mistake it for brand awareness. Explain that.
0: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, So I think that We, we look at branding from the standpoint of what we're saying about our brands, right? We are saying our brand is organic. We're saying our brand is wholesome and healthy. And we want to know, we want to make sure that we, we'd like to think, let me put it this this way. We want to think that consumers are seeing our brand the way we see it i mean we all walk out the door every day and we think we look cool and and at the end of the day i can tell you categorically i am north of 40 i don't think i'm cool anymore well i do okay you're cool you are still cool
1: and i bet your students think you're cool
0: I think they do too, but I may be completely self-delusional there. The point being, we have a sense of ourselves as we walk out the door and that sense could be how other people perceive us. It may not be. Other people may see us as way cooler than we think we are, for instance, and better looking and smarter. But at the end of the day, we are all kind of wedded to our the image that we think that we are projecting and brands are no different. So brands think to themselves, okay, brand identity is is a really simple thing. What I talk about in the book is that that's the end result of brand design. That's your colors, your fonts, your logos. And you worked really hard on that. It's like putting together a really nice outfit as you walk out the door. You are desperately hoping that people will notice how nicely your shirt coordinates with your pants or even not desperately hoping, but you're thinking to yourself, I'm really proud of this color combination. And then someone's going to, you'll be walking down the street and someone will say something like, nice watch. And you didn't even give your watch a second thought. And you feel like saying to the person, hey, you know, I spent like five minutes picking out this shade of beige with this other shade of beige. What about how nice these beiges are together? And at the end of the day, they notice something else completely. Or I think a better example might be if you've ever cooked a really good meal for your family. And you spent hours toiling over some recipe that you looked up in like Bon Appetit magazine and you spent hours, I don't know, pureeing parsnips and straining them and you're waiting for your family to like it. And then at the same time, they're like nice dinner rolls and you just (coughs) thawed out the dinner rolls and you bought them at the supermarket and you're like, gee thanks um (laughs) brand identity is that sauce you know you spent ages looking at you know figuring out how your brand should look and at the end of the day no one's going to notice the nuances about it they're going to understand the overall impression that your brand makes on them at best at best because they may have an impression of your brand that you did not intend to make and so i think that again Companies tend to look at data from their own perspective of, I want it validated that those those 12 months we spent holding meetings on what exact shade of beige should be the the dot at the end of our logo were not wasted. But I got news for you. They might have been wasted. They might not have been. No one's going to say, oh, that's the brand with that nice shade of beige and the dot at the end of their logo.
1: Right. However, so you, you talk about yeah. how... You know, while being known is the first step, you need to understand what you are known for, and that's where I think the the confusion is between brand identity and, and and brand awareness. Exactly. I should also say there's two chapters. Again, there's only 14 chapters. There's two chapters on content marketing metrics. It's just it's all in there, folks. And I, I want to get past that, but I wanted to mention something that. This is the part that really warmed the cockles of my heart. And I'm going to get to this in a minute. But I mentioned the Dictionary of Marketing Metrics and Related mm-hmm. terms at the end of the book, which is eight pages. That's right. I counted up how many pages there are. I bet you didn't even know there were eight pages. Good for you. I did not. I looked through there. And I, you know what I did? Because I'm such a nerd. I went through there and found, tried to find the ones I'd never heard of. And we're actually going to talk about a couple of these. But I want to mention one, which a lot of listeners are going to know. But maybe eh, there might be one or two people that don't know this, and uh, that's okay. It's it's about the four Ps of marketing, okay? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, uh, you know, over the years, I'll be talking to some company, and they'll say, um, well, we've grown our business 30 years. We haven't done any marketing. <laughs> and then I say, well, how do you guys figure out your pricing? And, and uh, what about your distribution? They have full answers for that. I say, well, you know – that, that's that's part of marketing. And they're like, "Oh, gosh, oh, so they always confuse marketing with just the the fourth p. Let me read what they are here, okay? So, so four p's of marketing are a framework for understanding how to create value for customers and promote it through the marketplace. They stand for product, price, place, and promotion. Product is the good or service that is being offered to cons- to customers. Price is the cost to purchase or use the product. Place is the location where the product can be found or used, and promotion is the methods by which a company communicates the value of its product to to customers. And again, as I'm a marketing book nerd, occasionally I'll see an author or there'll be a book and they'll say, oh, the four P's are old. You know how marketers love to say, fill in the blank is dead? SEO (laughs) is dead. Email is dead. Advertising, don't believe any of those. And they'll say, oh no, it needs to be the four A's, it needs to be the four C's, it needs to be the four Z's. It's like, Folks, the four P's still work. (laughs) Let's talk about the four P's. So imagine my delight when I saw that you have two chapters on data-driven product strategy. You heard the product. And another chapter on price and place metrics. And if that marketer wants a place at the table, wants to get in the revenue camp, wants to be, again, that kind of marketer that uh, every CEO wants to hire and can't afford to lose, the more you understand about... The other four Ps, you are really going to be doing quite well. And let me just read from uh, chapter 8. I think it's page 137 here. Wait for it. Wait for it. Here we go. Mm-hmm. One of the traditional four Ps of marketing, product strategy, has evolved into one of the most data-driven disciplines in business. How so?
0: Um, I think that – a- kind of step back for a moment um if you talk about product strategy um it's we got into this probably before i even entered the business world like in the 1980s where we talked about for instance just-in-time manufacturing Mm -hmm. um where we started using kanban all of these people don't realize like you said Product is a part of marketing. We don't necessarily, and, and we found this, Sarah and I, in our study, we don't necessarily find a lot of C-suite executives, although some do get it, looking for product data within their marketing data. But we've been using data to optimize the manufacture of products, the distribution. Of course, that's obviously more around place. Um, For a long time the problem is that it's fragmented and very few people think to look to marketing data for it they barely are looking at user experience ux research data and they should be looking there a lot but voice of the customer data is very important in smart companies product optimization the problem is they don't identify it as marketing data but the good news is they are using it Mm. i'm a really big believer in steve blank's customer discovery process i um have the honor and privilege right now of working with Steve Van Hooser's team at Brandeis University as their, as the mentor to them in what's called the National Science Foundation's I Corps or Innovation Corps program. And what that does is it helps university scientists and researchers figure out if there's a commercial potential for their products. And Steve and his team are working on a data platform that's going to consolidate neuroscience data so that we can work on cures. Well not we personally I I I can't scientist my way out of a paper bag. So scientists can work on cures for major neurological conditions like Alzheimer's. Oh interesting. And it's it's very, very interesting. One of the things that the National Science Foundation expects them to do is to go out and interview other neuroscientists to figure out whether they would be able to use this platform, and if so, what are the features, what are the benefits that they're looking for, and how would this product need to get into their hands for them to use it? Hmm. All of this is marketing.
1: Yes, yes. Well, let's talk about a couple of the product metrics, frameworks for understanding how you know individual actionable metrics fit into a larger strategic picture but first let me just share you talk about uh, worthless trivia i don't know if it was during this interview or while we were talking beforehand but interesting fact september 19th is international talk like a pirate day so i know it's a ways off but i just want people to know that september 19th for if there's a listener out there that has their birthday on september 19th it's national international talk like a Pirate Day. So in preparation for the question I'm about to ask you, I went out and interviewed a pirate, and here's what he had to say. That's really all he said. I don't really understand it. But I was wondering if you could tell us about the, the pirate metrics on page 139
0: I'm so glad you asked that because I actually have a pirate story for you about data. But right now, I I won't, I won't get into that. So the pirate metrics are R, -R -R A-A-R-R-R. Acquisition, activation, retention, referral, and revenue. And this is full credit for this framework goes to Dave McClure. Mm -hmm. Um, who's a venture capitalist acquisition just looks at how are you acquiring customers for your product. And again, I talk about acquisition metrics a lot in the book. Um, Like I say in the book, I'm going to talk to you about the same metrics over and over again through different lenses so that you can get the maximum out of your metrics. So you can see how this one data point can be utilized in a myriad of ways to move the needle. So when you use acquisition as a product metric, you're looking at, well, where am I getting the customers for this product? And that's something that my National Science Foundation team, Steve Van Hooser, is looking at right now also is, all right, how am I going to reach other neuroscientists? Is it going to be through conferences? Is it going to be be through publishing papers? So again, no one's using the word marketing really, but that's what that is. Mm -hmm. Activation, on the other hand, basically is is what you would call engagement. Now that I found people, how do I light them up with excitement for this product? What what it motivates them to purchase the product?
1: Mm -hmm. Would that that include uh, things like onboarding as well?
0: It would include things like onboarding. It would include things like. How to keep, it also includes stickiness. Mm -hmm. How do I get people to keep engaging with the product? How do I get them to log in more? Mm -hmm. How do I get them to utilize the product more? Because that leads to retention. People Do things because they have formed a habit to do that. So if you have people activated, in other words, they're enthusiastic about your product, they're regularly using it, and they're using it either more or they're using it to the maximum that they can be using it or increasingly more, then you're going to retain them. So you want to look at how long am I retaining people and what seems to lead to higher retention. Mm -hmm. And then retention leads to the second R, which is referral. If people are using your product and getting a lot of value out of it they're probably going to refer other customers to you there's a lot you might need to do to encourage that referral but they are going to become refer referers of other customers right as some of the some. best
1: marketing and has some of the highest conversion rates referrals it absolutely does yeah.
0: is referrals and then mm-hmm. finally that of course leads to revenue
1: right so i i mentioned uh, the glossary because when I went through the glossary, there were a handful of things I didn't know and I immediately went to that one, the one on R. So now, on (laughs) the next page, you write, and don't think I don't get your sense of humor here, Christina. You say, if you're not feeling piratical, I didn't know that word. If you're not feeling piratical, perhaps you prefer a set of metrics that is a bit more affectionate. So let's talk about another one Called heart.
0: <laughs> yes, heart is for those of us who just don't want to be a pirate. And I don't understand. But you know, I think pirate,
1: pirates are very emotional people. Uh, particularly the guy I spoke to. You heard what he said.
0: Uh, he sounded very heartfelt and sincere. Yes. But heart, on the other hand, is is a framework they use at Google, and it's very different from R. <laughs> Heart looks at happiness, which is essentially maybe your net promoter score or your CSAT or or whatever else you're using to measure satisfaction. The instrument is less important than than, that it's reliable and validated and you're seeing that people are happy with your product. Mm -hmm. Engagement, again, is the same, very similar to activation in Mm -hmm. the R, except that it really focuses entirely on activity for Google. Um, In other words, how often they interact with your product. Adoption is basically retention. How long people keep using your product or how connected they stay with your product over a given time period. In other words, just are, are they, are you retaining customers? Basically, or how many new customers are you getting in a particular time period? And it's interesting that they conflate and, and sort of mash together both retention and acquisition. I wouldn't necessarily do that myself, but mm-hmm. they're Google, so hey, they must be onto to something. <laughs> um, or maybe they're not. For but now, anyway, yeah. I wanted to share as many frameworks as I could. So in, in, in the heart model, adoption is both retention and acquisition. And then there, then they've got retention thrown in there extra, um, which is literally looking at just how many people stick with your, your product over the, over a specific amount of time. Um, And I can see kind of looking at both the overall number of users you have, which is adoption that takes into account your, your, users who've stayed on board for a while, plus your new ones added together. And then looking separately at retention, which is just how many people stay on board. And then you've got task success, which again is really important for any kind of technology product, but I would argue any product that you could possibly mess up using, which as we know as human beings is literally anything on earth. We could mess up the use of socks on a bad day. and task Back to the success, blue
1: socks. Yeah.
0: I know. I mean, at the end of the day, task success just looks that how many tasks associated with using your product are people able to Complete. So, if it's a software product, how many times do people get so frustrated with your product that they end up not being able to actually complete the task? If it's socks, then it's how many times are people able to successfully put on the socks? But again, <laughs> that may not be something that you can engineer into the product.
1: Yes, unless you have like the Internet of Things related to socks people are wearing, and you can uh, monitor it. But that's kind of kind of creepy. You know, I, I prefer the yeah. I prefer the R. But that may just be because I live, at, like you, I live in a port city in Norfolk, Virginia. You live in Boston. But I, I I really like that. So you also, in that chapter, you have a great explanation of something we already touched on related to ice cream sales and shark attacks about correlation does not equal causation. And just so folks know, there's, a again, another chapter after that on price and place and all the kinds of metrics that marketers could be looking at to become even more helpful and valuable to their uh, companies advising them on things uh, like distribution and 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 pricing. And one thing that I found uh, just really interesting, again, this is not fair to you, but like on page 183, you write that a common mistake in pricing strategy is to focus exclusively on the potential downside from price increases. However, if you have a good understanding of your price elasticity of demand – you can also measure the potential upside. Can you can you explain to folks what price elasticity of demand is, just so they can have enough to go research this?
0: Absolutely, it's a um, common concept in economics, and it basically just means, in stated plain English, how. Sensitive are my consumers to changes in price. So, in other words, if I were to double the price of a Dunkin' Donuts cup of coffee, how many people would decide, you know what, I may as well at this point buy Starbucks? Um, versus how many people will stay loyal? And, you know, obviously there's no product other than medical care where you can charge and medical care is often cited as an as the classic example in economics of a product that's very, you know, the, the demand's not very elastic. It'll it'll just um. People will buy it no matter what, but for most products, you want to know how much you can raise your prices before they decide that they don't want the product anymore. The, the reality is though, sometimes people will devalue a product if you're selling it too cheaply yes. and demand will go up if you raise the price.
1: <laughs> right. So don't be so afraid of raising your price, but also if you read this chapter, you can start to say, oh, wait a minute, this isn't exactly wizardry.
0: No, no, it's not. <laughs> Economics terrifies people, but at the end of the day, it's a weird combination of common sense and, and totally not common sense, let's be honest here. But um, it, you should not let these concepts intimidate you. They're actually pretty easy to understand, and I hope I break them down for people in the book. Um, and if not, there's so many great YouTube videos, but I do hope that I demystify some of these things in the book.
1: Well, I know one knuckleheaded podcaster who understands it, like so you if, you can, if you can write for them, yeah, I think you, you got a pretty big audience here. So let me just ask about two other sections of the book before we wrap up, because you're really being very generous with your time. It's about uh, chapter 12, Building Dashboards and Data Evangelism. And you write that organizations are increasingly looking to data-driven decision-making to help them stay competitive. However, many of these organizations do not have the right tools or skills in place to make the most of their data. So, can you explain what data evangelism is and, and how companies go about making data a fundamental part of their organization's culture?
0: It's very difficult because uh, I can. Ta- I'll tell you frankly that when you start using data to make decisions, the first thing is people are going to be afraid that they'll be told that they're not doing a good job and that their job might be therefore on the line. Mm. You know, they're afraid that if we start measuring data usage – uh, I mean, uh, using we start measuring ROI, return on ad spend, anything like that, or even just conversion rates or open rates, that um, it's going to come out that they're not doing well. Or we did find that a small percentage of C-suite executives that we interviewed can be a little bit micromanaging and can really start scrutinizing the open rate of every email campaign. And so people might rightly fear that, mm-hmm. micromanagement. I think the key is to make people understand that data is going to be used in service of their organization, excuse me, and in service of making them more effective marketers. And that, I think, is the number one way of being a data evangelist. A data evangelist is just somebody who demystifies data within their organization and helps people understand the numbers.
1: Sort of the the Christina Inge kind of person.
0: Exactly. Although probably much nicer. Stop it. Okay,
1: (laughs) I think you're nice and I like where this is going and I hope you do write some more books because I know this guy that interviews authors of marketing and sales books and he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but his guests are phenomenal. But you know, the thing that struck me about this was that it's a a culture thing and it's a management thing. And I think it's kind of a tough uh, row to hoe for a marketer all by themselves to try to introduce data evangelism to an organization if they're not receptive and also if they have those evil silos everywhere.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And silos are a really big problem. And to be totally frank, it's not necessarily that everybody is hoarding the data because they don't want to share. Most people don't understand the value of the data that they have to the rest of the organization. We're all busy. We all don't have time to share our data and explain it to another department. And as a result, I think it's just an under-resourced area, silo-busting. I don't think it's meant – nobody means any harm or arm by it.
1: Ah, but I see what you did there. But you know the thing I liked about Chapter 12 was that you show what's possible. So it's it's like a way of saying this is the – you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. This is what it could be like. These are there are organizations that are doing this, but I I would be nervous if I were a marketer and the boss came in and said, You marketing person, you're the dad evangelist, change the culture here. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like it's like that book. That book I, I mentioned earlier, Myths of Branding. You know, a, a brand is what a brand does. And that's why really the brand officer is now the CEO. It's not so much the marketing person, so anyway, well let me just ask about this this the chapter thirteen, the one I mentioned it's one of the most important chapters of really any of the books that have been on the show for a marketer to read it's about the skills of a metrics driven marketer, but also how to future proof your career and what what are some of the skills that you see in the most successful uh, metrics-driven marketers. There are a number of them here, but what are what are some of the commonalities that you see of these people that, again, are just really not going to have to look for a job too hard for the rest of their career?
0: Um, on a practical level, I continue to see people who have some basic data science skills, like maybe they know R or Python. <laughs> sorry. I'm really sorry. You've set something off here with the piracy part. Arr! I, I know this is terrible, but um, so <laughs> I'm sorry. That's num That's one thing. Is <laughs> talking like a pirate, or at least yes, knowing your R. But also, pirate. you
1: talked about uh, one thing. You talk about is uh, numerical literacy.
0: Math is a wonderful thing. Math is a really cool thing. Get off your athletes do some math. Math, math, math,
1: math, math. There's no extra charge for these sound effects, so
0: Thank you. <laughs> they're, they're excellent. And I have to say though, numerical literacy, what's nice about it is you don't have to necessarily be very well versed in math. You literally just have to be unafraid of it and understand how to think with numbers.
1: Yes. Yes, that's very well said. And also, in that chapter, there was something else that I just thought was so – I mean, you talk about, um, you know, quantitative skills and understanding statistics. But even on statistics, you've got links to places like the Khan Academy where you can go and take some rudimentary courses on statistics, which actually is going to be very helpful, particularly if you listen to any news around elections. (laughs) (laughs) I love it because you you could hear them talk about, you know, uh, poll data, but there was one other thing in here that was just so important and it had to do with just understanding finances, basic accounting 101 kind of things and, you know, profits, uh, uh, net sales, gross sales, things like that, which is really important for marketers to be able to talk about around what I call civilians. And when I say civilians, I mean anyone outside the marketing department. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, Christina, if readers took only one thing away from this big book that weighs a pound and a half, what would you hope it would be?
0: I think what I would hope them to take away would frankly be to not be afraid of numbers. Don't be afraid of math, don't be intimidated by it, but also don't be afraid of measurement for fear that it's going to give you information that you don't like. If that's the case, so be it. But at the end of the day, you can't solve a problem that you're not willing to face up to. So make sure that you are ready when it tells you information that you don't want to hear because that's, again, uh, a really important thing. There was a study out, I believe, from Gartner that asked CCWIT executives why did they feel that analytics was not realizing its potential within their organization. And the tide for top answer was that the analytics are telling us things that con- contradict our planned course of action. Oh. Listen to that again. We don't think analytics is working because it's telling us to do things that we don't want to do.
1: It's <laughs> darn humans.
0: That's like saying my scale is broken because it's telling me things I don't want to hear. Well, my scale um, is
1: broken, but yes, I know what you mean. I, yeah, yeah it's that so thing amazing. lies.
0: It's, that thing lies, and I think people are looking at their analytics in the same way. It's like that thing lies. It's telling me things I don't want to hear.
1: <laughs> oh. Yes. Oh, that's, that's, that's great advice. And uh, <laughs> there's nothing to be afraid of. But this is such, a, such an empowering book for, for anyone that's going to have a, you know, a really successful marketing career. Let's give the listeners something to do today, Professor. Just a little bit of homework. One thing they could do today to just to put in action one of the ideas from your book that we've talked about that they could just just go try.
0: Really simply and really quickly, first of all, make sure that you've gone over. Uh, this is pretty tactical. Most people have probably done that. Go make sure that you're actually on Google Analytics 4 and not on un- Universal Analytics. It's being sunsetted in um, July. And as my brilliant friend um, Chris Penn will oh, yeah. tell you, you want to make sure that you're already collecting data in Google Analytics 4. Because all your old data, it's not going to, it's not going to move over to Google Analytics 4. So you want to have as much longitudinal data as possible, especially since Google's doing some predictive analytics using that data for you, predicting who's most likely to convert, for instance. And that's going to need as much data as you can. So do that.
1: Yeah, that is great advice, and I'll include a link to uh, Chris Penn's website, and he's the co-host of Marketing Over Coffee, which is another great podcast. I'm, I, I hope uh, my listeners check that out, and I'm sure many of them listen to it. So, Christina, looking back, what books have most inspired your work and career? Um, interesting
0: question to ask. Um I'm going to start with some of the marketing greats. Uh, I've read everything of Anne Hadley's that I can get my hands on. She's a lovely human being and a wonderful author.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: I love uh, the inbound methodology, and I'm a huge consumer of HubSpot's online courses, but also love the book Inbound. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of Andy Crestodina's Content Chemistry. It's a book I recommend to literally every human being that I speak to who's interested in marketing. It breaks down how to do content-driven digital marketing better than any book I've ever read. I'm also really fond of Rob P- Fitzpatrick's book, The Mom Test, which is about how to gather qualitative data through interviews about what people really think about a new product idea. And I recommend that to all of my Startup Friends. Uh, Really phenomenal book is The Mom Test. Books other than marketing that have really influenced me, um, there's a book on executive presence that is really, it's literally called Executive Presence. It's from the Harvard Business Review. Um, I think it's in their Emotional Intelligence series. It's a little tiny book. You can carry it around in your pocket. It really helps uh, in how you are going to be a persuasive person, how you can command a room. I, I always tell people I'm a recovering wallflower and they don't believe it that I used to be very, very shy, but I did. And Get I can tell you no, I did. And that book's really helpful. So is a book called Own the Room, which is completely mistitled, in my opinion, because it's not about kind of dominating the room or, or piracy. Um, it's really about how do you advocate for your team, as well as how to be more assertive and yet supportive at the same time as a manager. Great oh, book.
1: Interesting. Interesting. So I've had the honor of interviewing Ann Hanley. And uh, Andy Crescidina and their books are two of the books that every marketer should read. And I've recently interviewed her about the second edition of Everybody Writes. Just amazing. And then Andy's book, Content Chemistry, again, you are making very good recommendations to your students. That is, again, one of the very small number of books that every marketer can I'm not saying they have to read it, but they can really, really benefit from it. It is just an exceptional book. Yeah. It is. It so is. are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading?
0: In terms of marketing books, I, I Well, can't. any book, really. Well, I have to say, all right, any book. I'm going to go back yeah. to being a history geek then. If you are at all, as I am fascinated right now, by ancient history, mm-hmm. which has become my new geekery, I learned about I learned about how the Thebans defeated the Spartans from a really interesting book called "The Sacred Band," um, mm-hmm. by James Rom, and it talks about uh, the elite military unit that Thebans were able to train up that helped them defeat the Spartans along with their data-driven strategy. But what it looks at, and I don't want to get political here, is what does it look like? when people start to drift away from ideas like democracy, liberty, individual rights, and what what does that look like when people try to to save that situation? And obviously, you know, spears are not the answer in the modern world. (laughs) But it honestly kind of looks at the proto-democracy, which is ancient Greece, and how they had some interesting challenges, very similar to our own. Mm-hmm. Obviously also very different, because A, Spears are not the answer, and B, women had no rights. So it's not analogous, but it is a fascinating... Amongst a few
1: other things, yeah. Like...
0: Amongst a few other little minor details like that. But it's a fascinating underdog story, and... Um, the Secret Band, is this called? Sa- sacred Band. Oh, The Sacred the Band. Sacred band okay. By James Rom. And then there's also a wonderful book called Women at War in the classical world, which really talks about the under-recognized contribution that nurses, army cooks, um, repair women laundry ladies and and all of those support women who often followed their sons and husbands and brothers into war made in ancient times and i think it's it's a fascinating story that i think resonates not just with the history of women but the fact that as leaders we often take for granted the people doing the unglamorous jobs and if you're doing the unglamorous job you are possibly the person being unrecognized because everybody remembers you know the great warriors and generals of history Although, obviously, Epaminondas needs more credit, being the the math professor general here.
1: But 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 it's the ones who wrote the history that tend to be better known. To be be remembered.
0: And the Thebans didn't have time to sit around writing history. Um, They made it. But again, nobody writes about wars being won by the lunch ladies. But, you know, if you are your department's lunch lady or whatever is like the unrecognized but vital role, I think that book is, again, great history, but also going to resonate with
1: you. Yeah, Women at War in the Classical World. Okay, so I have to admit to you, I'm a big military history fan, having served in the in the military myself, and uh, these look really interesting. And there's another author that was on the show for the 400th episode, uh, Stephen Pressfield, who <laughs> has written a number of books about um, – you know, the ancient world, particularly in uh, military. Oh, yeah, so, I love his stuff. Yeah, he's written a lot of uh, books about that, as well as uh, The War of Art, and his most recent book was... Put your ass where your heart wants to be, which is sort of a continuation of the war of art. Great, great book. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're gonna include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, the past interviews that that I've I've mentioned, like Jenny Dietrich's, she's the author of Spin Sucks. We'll include a link to Steve Scheinkoff's Yale Appliance. <clears throat> and uh he'd better he'd better give you a bottle of wine for you know being such a good uh, and loyal customer but we're going to include a link to uh, your 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 uh, company site your LinkedIn profile your Twitter account and now a word to you dear listener I want to ask you a big big favor please reach out to Christina in some way and congratulate her on this very important book and thank her for being a guest on the marketing book podcast and you know, mustering up the courage and uh, to laugh at my stupid jokes and, you know, send her a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or to her company's website. Guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from marketing book podcast listeners. And of course, not just because marketing book podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And if you're listening on your smartphone And you have subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast and your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. All these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote from the preface. Marketing is no longer a vague, unmeasurable cost center. We are rebuilding, reinventing, and reimagining what it means to be a marketer. We are also rebuilding ourselves. The book is Marketing Metrics Leverage Analytics and Data to Optimize Marketing Strategies. The author is Christina Inge. Christina, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Douglas. And remember, talk like a pirate. Arr! <laughs>
1: And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary they wrote a book about it. For a copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you are one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some marketing book podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.